0: Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive.
1: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... Six one since that matters. And, what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble
2: with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer.
1: They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
0: Support for this show comes from the National Wellness Institute, committed
2: to providing the tools, trainings, and resources to propel your career in wellness. Become a member today at nationalwellness.org.
1: From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today, Reverend Nadia Bowles-Weber, is the author of two New York Times bestselling memoirs, Accidental Saints, Finding God in All the Wrong People, and Pastrix, The Cranky, Beautiful Faith of a Sinner and Saint. Her newest book, Shameless, A Sexual Reformation, is due out later this month, the end of January. She's the founder and now former pastor of a Lutheran congregation in Denver, Colorado called House for All Sinners and Saints, and currently devotes her time and energy to speaking at colleges and conferences around the world. A Conversation with Nadia Bowles-Weber and Steve Kiesling is the cover story of the January-February 2019 issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Nadia, welcome to Essential Conversations.
2: Oh, thanks so much. Happy to be here.
1: Well, it's nice to talk to you. We spoke once before. I don't remember exactly when. I didn't look it up. But you were still with the church. And I want to talk to you in a minute about why you left and, and uh, some things that we have in common around that. But I'm very interested in the new book, Shameless, A Sexual Reformation. What's the, what was the impetus for writing this book?
2: Well, I think it was twofold. One was just really deeply pastoral, in the sense that, you know, I have pastored people for over a decade that have had so much harm done to them uh, from the teachings that they absorbed from the church about sex and sexuality and gender and bodies. And so just, you know, a decade of conversations trying to sort of spiritually unwind uh the bound feeling that they have around their own sexuality uh, that was sort of due to messages that they received in God's name. And then the other was even more personal uh, just having, you know, in midlife being divorced and having a new relationship and having um to be frank, having my sex life change at you know forty seven years old forty eight years old, and seeing how that felt like an exfoliation of my whole spirit and was so good for my body and my brain and my heart and how it softened me and And then I reflected on the fact that I'm ordained in one of the most liberal denominations in the country, and I had to sign a document when I was ordained that said I'd be faithful in marriage or celibate in singleness. And I'm like, why the hell does the church concern themselves with my sex life as a grown ass woman. Like they allow, they, they trust me with the care of souls and they don't trust me to make good decisions with my sexuality. I just, I I just felt puzzled by that. And my partner is not Christian. And I, uh, I Skyped with him when I was on the road. Uh, I was on a book tour in Europe and I said, why, why do you think the church has tried to control sex for so long And without skipping a beat, he just said, well, I guess I always assume that the church saw sex as its competition. And I just thought, oh, I'm. I'm writing a book. I mean, I literally said (laughs) I'm going to write a book. And so it's sort of this, it's an invitation to a conversation to sort of untangle a lot of the harmful teachings that religion doles out about sex and bodies and how to have a, a sexual ethic that makes more sense in the modern era and to sort of encourage the sexual flourishing of people and that they get to decide what that looks like
1: that's I mean, that's pretty radical. I don't know if that's a reformation or a revolution, but but that's that is pretty radical. I just want I guess I don't know if this is a fair question or not. But I love this this term you just use exfoliate. so so what what does that mean? I mean, you you said your sex life changed, and then you you said exfoliate. Like you dropped an old skin, and now you're
2: right. So, I mean, I can't tell you how it's changed me. Like everything about me is softer. Uh, And, and like sex is used um, to control people. There's, um, there's assault that can be involved. I mean, there's danger, there can be harm certainly, but also it can fucking transform your life to have, to have really good sex. And I'm like, Why is it not a pastoral concern of those of us who have people in our care that they're having good sex, that they are connected enough and integrated enough sexually, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, to be able to be unselfconscious with their partner, to be uninhibited, that um, that's an aspect of our flourishing that, we just ignore, and so many of us are bound up with sexual shame. So I'm like, let's let's just have a conversation about that. So the book is, it's a it, you know, it's it's my own ideas about stuff, but it's also really personal stories from me and those that were shared within my church, and I hope it encourages more conversations like that.
1: So your your partner said that uh, sex was was competition for the church. So so maybe, but I want to push a little bit further. I'm wondering if sex isn't, I mean, when I think about it, one of the things, or a couple of things that scares religion, not just the church, I'm not Christian, I don't speak for the church, but one of the things that scares organized religion, a couple of things that scares organized religion the most, I think, are free-thinking individuals, uh, humor, and sex. And I, I think, I think that that humor just allows you to shatter. Humor is like pulling the curtain back on the great and terrible wizards of religion, and you find these little men, and, and I mean men literally men, these little men with big megaphones, and and that they hate that. And then sex, it's maybe competition, and and I'm, I'm this is a question though it might come out more as a statement. The ecstasy that that sex offers, not all the time. But the possibility of that ecstasy, which is sort of really going beyond the body into a larger realm of of awakening, is something that spirituality or mysticism offers, but the organized religious world, it scares them to death.
2: Well, correct, because I think organized religion really has a very controlled way of doling that out. And I also think that um, on some level, what we're seeking in religion on some level is connection is union with Mm -hmm. the divine on some level, right? We're seeking union, the type of union that takes us out of ourselves and draws us more deeply into ourselves at the same time through union with the divine. And I would argue it's very similar with sex, uh, with the sort of ecstatic, um, experience of sex is that you are drawn out of yourself and more deeply into yourself through union with somebody else. And so, there's a transcendence, I think, that the two share for sure.
1: Yeah, you know, this is probably pushing the the notion of bhakti yoga further than the yogis might want to go. But in bhakti yoga, I mean, you are in love with your chosen image of, of the divine, and, and you have this devotion toward that image. And there is this deep love that happens until, uh, it's so deep, in fact, that eventually you realize you and the divine are one. Tatvam asi. God is, the whole thing is God, and you're, you're a part of that. And I think that happens in, in human sexuality. It can happen with you and a partner, and there's that unity. But I think there's also the possibility in, in some you, you find this, I think, in some te- uh tantric sex practices where the the union of the partner w- of the partners is a prelude to the union with god and and again that's the, I imagine if churches, synagogues temples mosques would would teach sex on on their respective holy days, they'd get a lot more members <laughs> than- yeah, but you know it's
2: interesting that um you know the whole uh the song of songs in the yeah. hebrew text was called the holy of holies and but there's this whole history of interpretation saying this is not actually an erotic a very hot erotic poem that is centered mostly around female sexual desire in a shameless way no it's not that it's about union with the divine and so even though i like that line of thinking and i find it very interesting there's a way in which that exact line of thinking has stolen um the the female voice from within the song of songs in the Bible. And then Origen, one of the church fathers picked it up and goes, Oh no, this has nothing. There is no carnality whatsoever right. in this poem. It's about Jesus love for the church. I'm like, well, first of all, that's a stretch. Second of all, uh, Origen was so terrified of sexual temptation. He literally castrated himself. So I'm like, is that the guy we want to look to for guidance around this? Right. <laughs> just history of interpretation alone is fascinating,
1: right? I mean, Rabbi Akiva said is the one who said that the Song of Songs was the holy of holies, and and the reason he got away with it is because he interpreted it very similarly, not about Jesus and the church, but about God and the and the in the Jewish people. So you know, I mean, it's it's ridiculous, and I mean, there, there's just to give you one example. There's there's a part in the Song of Songs where the man is uh, waxing rhapsodic about the woman's navel. And, and it's probably not her navel, but it's a you know, little, little further south. And the rabbis say, it can't be what it says it is. So, because uh, it says the navel is always overflowing with, with nectar and you know, all this stuff. So, so they say, oh look, the navel, what's, they go, what's the navel? The navel is the center of the human body. What's the center of the body of Israel? It's the rabbinic court. He's talking about the rabbinic you know, organization, the organized uh, rabbinate. And what's the nectar that's always falling? We always come up with new interpretations of, of the law. You know? and they, I mean, they totally ruined it. But these, these were men uh, who, who, who only went home, um, who, who had to be, the, the sex with their wives had to be mandated. It's, it's a law that scholars had to go home and have sex with their wives once a week. Otherwise, they just stay and hang out with the boys and study these texts. They'd rather study sex or talk about sex than actually have sex. So, so yeah, but it's still in the book. I mean, that's the hopeful thing is that the Song of Songs is still in the Bible for people like you to go. Well, I've actually got a, a recent uh, translation and commentary out also on it. But for people like us to go and, and reclaim and say, no, this is, this is uh, much more than what What the organized religious elites want you to believe it is.
0: Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for A Moment of Silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety grounding and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org/thrive.
2: Oh yeah, and it's and it's such a great model for for body positivity and unself-consciousness of your sexuality and I mean it's beautiful. It's I I became a little obsessed with it as I was writing the book.
1: Yeah. I mean they're not married they they're not they're not even in a necessary a long term committed relationship I I know.
2: you know all the things that that religion wants to you know mandate uh, and right. of course i mean if if sex is the competition to religion then uh you have to interpret that book in a very particular way because it's like the, you know somehow the enemy snuck behind the lines and is like in your camp you know <laughs> like right. there it is
1: yeah yeah and and i think I think it's competition I, I think it's very threatening and i want, want to get your take on this I think one of the reasons it's threatening is actually related to the title of your new book Shameless. I think that without shame and I don't know exactly how we want to define that but without shame, religious leaders have a hard time maintaining control now i don't know that, i don't know if that's true with every religion but from look and, and and fear right but it, but it's which is very biblical. I mean they weren't ashamed and they were naked and they were not ashamed and then they become you know ashamed and and frightened at the same time.
2: But let's let's talk about that because um I think it's really important to understand that you know the the garden of eden the genesis story is is a is an origin tale, right? Every every culture has origin tales. It tells us how humanity was created, why snakes don't have legs, you know, things we right, have right
1: right teleological
2: Yep, exactly. So it's an origin tale, and but it also is an origin tale for shame, and it tells us shame has an origin, and it's not God, because we, there were there were two trees in the garden. There was the tree of life, which I read as being uh, living in an integrated, flourishing way in in relationship with ourselves, each other, and with God. That's life, or There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where being in relationship with God isn't quite good enough. We need to try to be like God and live in that dualistic thinking in that judgmental mind of of who's good and who's bad. So we know who we are. We don't listen to God for who we are anymore. We listen to the knowledge of good and evil and we rank ourselves according to who we are in relation to other people. So when the serpent said, uh told them lies and now there's a a voice that's not God's that's telling them who they are and who God is and they listened to that voice and they believed it that's when everything went to shit right that's when suddenly they're they're aware of their nakedness they're hiding their nakedness they're hiding from God and then God goes hey where are you guys and they go oh we're ashamed of our nakedness so we're hiding from you and we're afraid of you and then God goes well hold on who who told you you were naked? Well, my money's on the snake, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> right? so the, it's this origin of here's the effect of shame. It makes us hide. It makes us blame others. It makes us not tell the truth. It makes us afraid of God, afraid of each other, afraid of ourselves. That's the effect of shame, but it tells us the origin. The origin of shame isn't God, it's when we start listening to voices that are not God's tell us who we are and what
1: our value is. So, nice interpretation of the text. I'm going to just throw in a- another little bit on this. The, the, the only person who actually is afraid and ashamed is the guy, and the, right? And the only person who is actually exiled from the garden is the guy. The language so is… passive. And, and, he's, and he's kicked out. And whereas the woman leaves, because we find her out in the next chapter, she leaves, but she leaves under her own accord. That there's an interesting, and I won't, it's long and I, we don't have time for it, but there's an interesting commentary, Jewish commentary, that Eve was sort of the, the, the Hebrew Prometheus. She stole wisdom from, from God. And she's recognized when Adam looks at her after th- this event, he calls her the mother of all the living and there's this whole theory that he sees in her the mother goddess figure, that she, you know, she becomes Chachma Sophia wisdom and, and all of this stuff. And it's, it's really a story about everything you said being true of men, but, but, but not, not of women, but that's a whole- Let's just do Midrash the whole time. Yes, that would be great, except we're almost out of time. So let, let me ask you another question, because we are coming up against the end of our, our time together. You and I have a lot in common, I and mean, we we both started our own institutions. You did a church, I did a synagogue. We both left. I I left because I, I in a sense I outgrew it. I I outgrew. i I'm, I have a deep connection with Hinduism and Buddhism and Christianity and Islam, and and all that stuff was creeping into my teaching, and it was not really just a Jewish thing for me anymore. And and now though my I'm still a Jew, and my primary spiritual language is is Judaism. I am very eclectic. So I'm just curious about your situation now. You you left, I mean, you can tell us why you left, but I'm curious about what the state of your Christian belief is at the moment.
2: Yeah, so I left because I intended to leave from the beginning. And I, it was so important to me as this like charismatic founder that, that I not overstay my welcome. And, and then that congregation has founder syndrome. And so I started talking about the fact that I would leave at one point the first year. And um, it was just really important to me to pay attention. And there were some signs um, that I felt like, Oh, I'm not needed. They, so I left when they still loved me. Mm -hmm. And, um, but when I realized they didn't need me and they would be okay without me. And there was a transition for over three years with the person who took over. So I went part-time and this gay Episcopal priest, Reagan Umber was full-time for three years before I left. So it was very gradual and it was a gratitude and love filled leave taking for which I'm really grateful. I would do anything to be able to go and worship there once a month because I miss it dearly. Uh, but, um, but, our tradition is that you give them at least a year of space without you around before right. you try. And- well,
1: I mean, that that makes sense. So, where are you as a Christian?
2: It's interesting because i I couldn't not be Christian for all the money in the world. There It is just completely formed. This symbol system has formed my understanding of myself and the universe. Uh, I, and i but I love the perennial wisdom within different traditions. And so I, I am very, I'm like a Christocentric universalist, basically. <laughs> and so I do practice yoga a, a lot. And I, my, my uh, boyfriend is part of a completely different spiritual tradition. And I get a sort of dive into that when I want. And, um and I'm grateful for it. Like it, to me, it's all good. So there's nothing exclusive in, in my understanding of Christianity, it's just exclusive for me. Like this is the truth. It's like the most true story I've ever heard. And it's the one I'll tell for the rest of my life. And like my friend Rachel says, it's the one that I will risk being wrong about. Uh, That's how passionate I am about that, the story, but I love the way that the, the, the truth of God and redemption and human beings and forgiveness and salvation and liberation is revealed in so many other traditions. Um, It it will, it will, it will find itself in every culture in some way. And I love learning things uh, outside my tradition that end up sort of making me a better Christian, if that makes Uh. sense.
1: Absolutely. And a beautiful way to end the conversation. Our guest today was Reverend Nadia Bowles-Weber. Her new book is called Shameless, A Sexual Reformation. You can learn more about her work at NadiaBowlesWeber.com. And a conversation between Nadia and Steve Kiesling is the cover story of the January-February 2019 issue of Spirituality Health Magazine. Nadia, thank you so much for talking with us on Essential Conversations.
2: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks.
1: Support for this show comes from the National Wellness Institute, committed to providing the tools, training, and resources to propel your career in wellness. Become a member today at nationalwellness.org. Before we sign off, let me remind you that this year is the 20th anniversary of Spirituality and Health magazine. As part of our celebration, I'm leading an interspiritual tour of the Holy Land this is part tour, part pilgrimage, as we engage in contemplative practices linked to the various sites we will visit, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, and Baha'i. For more information, please visit us at spiritualityhealth.com backslash hyphen with hyphen Rami. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine please log in to spiritualityhealth.com to subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats and to download the iTunes app for this podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker and our program coordinator and executive producer is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening.